So please take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 26. I have two main points tonight out of chapter 26 and chapter 27. They're easy to remember, but I have two main points and then a bunch of subpoints. But let's look at this, Isaiah chapter 26. Remember that chapters 24 through 27 give us another, another section of Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 5 are all um, introductory material. And then chapter 6 is Isaiah's call as he sees a vision of Jesus on the throne. Chapters 7 through 12, it's the book of Emmanuel, where we get prophecy after prophecy of the babe who would be born of a virgin, who would own the land and someday come as the light in the midst of the darkness of the land, and then someday rule as king of the land. Then in chapters 13 through 23, we see the same Emmanuel, Jesus, who is the Lord over all the nations, and he's putting down one kingdom after another. And in the end... Only the believers will stand, and the nation that will shine above all the others is the nation of Israel. Interesting in the, in the news today, isn't it interesting, the conflict going on with Israel and the U.S.? Can you believe we're even here where we're not the greatest supporters of, of Israel? Wow. That's going to be hard on our country. I'll let you know that right now. We need to be standing with Israel. We need to be standing with and, and seeking to do all we can to give aid to Israel. In the, they are in the midst of... Uh, evil empires all around them. And so we need to pray for Israel and for the peace of Jerusalem. We're going to find some answers, by the way. We will find the answers of today's issues with Israel and Iran, the nuclear talks and everything going on. The answer is found in Isaiah 26. What I love about these chapters now, 24 through 27, is I call it Isaiah's little apocalypse. Other uh, conservative scholars have also called it Isaiah's little apocalypse, meaning it's like a mini book of Revelation. And we saw chapter 24, where the Lord comes back to this earth, and he takes away the green grass with the vegetation. He takes away the fresh water, the seawater. He takes away the sun, moon, and the stars. He leaves the world desolate that men and women would be humbled and receive him as the Messiah. Then we saw in chapter 25, the response after the dark days of tribulation. Jesus is back on earth. What does he do as the king? There's a, a great coronation feast. And as Jesus is seated in Jerusalem, there is table after table of banquet things. There's meats and all sorts of things to eat and to drink. And we will rejoice and praise the Lord. And then the Lord, as the host of the dinner, he will stand and say, people, I have given you some gifts. The first gift is death is destroyed. It is swallowed up in victory by Jesus and the cross and resurrection. This veil of death that has come upon the earth since the days of Adam and Eve has been lifted and removed. Death is no more. But the second gift, much like the first, is rejoicing. Every tear will be wiped away. What a gift. We will have no sorrow, nor disease, no death, no grief, no aches of the heart, no loneliness, no bitterness, no envy, no strife. It'll all be gone someday. Praise the Lord. What a glorious kingdom. This is why we call it the millennial kingdom. It is a kingdom of rest and peace. Now, we're moving into chapter 26. Two points. My first point. We are going to see first the future rejoicing of God's people. This is a future picture of the rejoicing of God's people. My second point, the future regathering of God's people. So this is how Isaiah presents the material. He gives us what is going to happen in the future. What are some songs they're going to sing? What are some things that they're going to do in the future as they look back on human history? And that is the, the future days of rejoicing by the saved people, both in Israel but through all the land. And then the second one, the second point we're going to address tonight is quickly, we'll address the future regathering of Israel. 
because God has to bring those Jewish people back to their land in belief, and they have to trust their Messiah. He will do it. He is going to do it. So let's look at chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, so anytime you see that phrase, in that day, we're speaking future kingdom days, the future millennial kingdom. Verse 20, chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. What are we going to read right now? I hope you're on the edge of your seats because although I'm not seated, I'm on the edge of my seat in a, in a metaphorical way. We are being told a song that will be sung by the nation Israel when Jesus is the king of the land. Now, this has got to be pretty special and pretty incredible, and it certainly is. So this is a song to be learned and sung by future generation of Jewish believers. Now, okay, you have to get excited about this. Can you picture what's going on in the world scene? The whole world's been laid desolate. Trees, vegetation, freshwater, seawater, everything has been destroyed. There's billions of people that have died, billions of deaths, and the land has been ravished. Jerusalem has been broken down. The beautiful walls of old Jerusalem right now, whatever walls are there right now, those might be the very walls that are broken down, but there's going to be rubble everywhere. It's going to be just gross. The smoke is going to be rising up. There's going to be a stench, and then Jesus comes. What does he do? He he builds his city, Jerusalem, because that's where he's going to live, and that's where the temple is. So Zechariah says he's going to build his temple. Jesus will build it, not us. He will build it. It's going to be spectacular. Can you picture it almost already? So what we're being given right here in chapter 26, picture coming from seven years of desolation and destruction and strife, and you're coming into the glorious city, and Jesus in radiant garment, in perfect holiness, is in the midst of the city, and, but we're not in there yet. Picture you're Israel, and now we're going up to the city. We're, we're approaching the city walls. No longer are they broken down with rubble, but the walls are strong and solid, and there, maybe there's gates that have pearls, and maybe the foundation of the city, not on bedrock, but maybe beautiful, beautiful stones and jewels, like the New, New Jerusalem of Revelation 21. We don't know what it looks like, but here's what we know. Verse 1, we have a strong city. That's what they're first going to say. Our city is left standing. Every other city, Tokyo, um, Beijing, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, Paris, every single city has fallen. There's only one city left remaining. It is Jerusalem. And the first cry is going to be, we have a strong city. Jerusalem has not fallen. I'll tell you what, Jerusalem may fall these days between now and then. I don't know. But in the end, that city, Jerusalem, will remain standing. It will. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. All right? The walls. I think literal walls. Literal walls and little, literal gates. What, what is God saying? He, God is saying this city is a place of safety and security and deliverance. Salvation can be found here. And these walls are solid. No enemy can get in. Verse 2. The song is going to be sung, maybe from outside, and they're going to be going, open the gates, open the gates. Can you almost picture that in the song? Maybe some huge brass instruments and string instruments. And the cry is, get those gates open. Why do we want the gates to Jerusalem open, everybody? Why? So we can enter, so we can go in. So there's going to be a great song. Lord, get those doors open. Now, Psalm 24, we don't have time to go there, but you know Psalm 22, it's all about the cross. 
It is about the suffering shepherd who dies, whose bones are broken, his blood is shed for the whole world. So Psalm 22 is a song of grief and pain and agony of the piercings of the crucifixion. Psalm 23, it's the present age, so that's the past, the cross. Psalm 23, it's the good shepherd who takes care of his sheep. That's present things. He leads us by still waters. He restores our soul. He leads us to green pastures. He brings us to the valley of shadow and death. So Psalm 22, you've got the death of Jesus in the past. Psalm 23, the good shepherd taking care of his sheep right now. Psalm 24, the future chief shepherd coming to rule and reign. If you get a chance, read Psalm 24 this week. It is phenomenal. It starts by saying, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. Everything belongs to the Lord. And then on and on and on. Then it gets to verse 7, I think it is, in Psalm 24, where it's like this. Open up the gates. Open up the gates. For who's coming in? It's the king of glory. Open the gates. The king of glory is about to enter. Who's coming? And he just repeats himself over. They're so excited. Get the gates open. You can almost picture the eastern gate beginning to crack open of the glorious new city, Jerusalem, on this present earth. And Jesus, the crucified Savior who is standing tall and strong, walks into the city. And everybody's shouting, who has come? Who has come? The King of glory, he is here. The King of glory, he is here. That's the idea. Does that sound like an exciting day? When I go to Jerusalem, even now, I'm up on the Mount of Olives. I'm looking down at this forlorn city, this city that's been forsaken. And I look and I think, someday, the greatest celebration the earth has ever seen will be there. It's exciting. So here, look, we're not even hardly on any verses, and we already have such pictures in our mind. Verse 2, open the gates that the righteous nation, which keeps the truth, may enter in. I think the righteous nation is Israel. Have they kept the truth in their history? No, they're not. They haven't, but they will now. They will be truth keepers. Hey, shouldn't we be identified as church-age disciples, as truth keepers, followers of righteousness? Let it not be said of us that we're not faithful and loyal to the Lord. Let that never be spoken of us. But they're going to say, get those gates open. The king of glory has entered, and now the righteous nation shall enter in. Verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. We just sang about that. You know who, the, who enters that kingdom? Men and women who have gone through the greatest persecution and strife this world has ever seen. They will experience earthquakes that will knock buildings down, knock islands out of the ocean. It'll knock Mount Everest down to be a flat, a flat land. That's pretty scary. And who's going to survive that are the men and women whose trust is in Jesus Christ alone. They're not trusting in the weather forecast. They're not trusting in man. They can't. Nothing else is, everything else shakes. Everything else moves. But Jesus Christ doesn't. The ones who rest fully on Jesus, the Bible says they get perfect peace. It's in the Hebrew, shalom, shalom. They get double helpings of peace and rest. Now, isn't that true for us too? We go through something and the bottom of our life drops out. A disease, an accident, a death, a sorrow, a loss, some type of emotional loss. Who knows what kind of loss we all experience. There's something that happens in our life when the bottom just drops out. And we feel overwhelmed. We feel like we can't go on another day. It is only the one whose mind is fully resting on. And the word stayed on the Lord, it's the idea to rest firmly, to set yourself upon, to lie upon, to to anchor yourself on. It's the idea of to find refuge. It's only those who find refuge in Jesus that can survive with any type of sanity. Isn't it true? So the one who has perfect peace, 
who has shalom, shalom, is the one whose mind, their whole mindset is, I have to trust the Lord through that. He has to take care of us. If he doesn't do it, we shall perish. We shall die. Um, The one is, why does he have this perfect peace? Because he trusts in you, Lord. Verse 4. Here's the admonition in the song. You can almost hear the beautiful chorus of voices singing out, trust in the Lord for how long? Forever. You know, often we think trusting the Lord is just a moment of our salvation in the church age. We have such a shallow view of salvation. We think it's all about us. Oh, Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I'm going to heaven. That's my salvation. Oh, our salvation is so much deeper than that. And so we just need to be realizing the depth of our salvation. Our salvation is trusting the Lord forever, resting upon him, and we'll have that perfect peace in eternity future. For in Yah, Yah, the, the Lord, is everlasting strength. Remember the word Yah from Yahweh? It's, a, it's kind of almost like a nickname. It's a shortened form of Yahweh. For in Yah. Remember I told you, if you, you know, if you, people call me Brian, or you call, might call me Bri, just because it's kind of a, a kind of a more friendly thing, more of a thing. It's, just, it's like saying instead of Yahweh, you're like, for Yah, Yah, the Lord. He is the everlasting strength. He's the rock. He's the one that never moves and never gets shaken. If you want your life to be such that you're not moved or shaken, find yourself right with him. Find yourself resting upon him. He goes on. How can there be such confidence in the Lord? Here's why. Verse 5. For he brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. Anybody who is arrogant and proud, the Lord will already have taken care of. And so the song of the redeemed, the future rejoicing of Israel, why could we trust the Lord so fully? Because he has taken care of every enemy. Every enemy is taken down. Now, can I give you a little side note? I can tell already we're not going to finish this message. I've been doing a lot of thinking about this and research about this. This whole idea of the city of man versus the city of God. When God created Adam and Eve, what did he say? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the, right, fill the earth. Not fill the city, fill the earth. He wanted the whole earth populated. Now, I found this interesting, and just do what you want with it. In Genesis chapter 4, there's a, a baby named Cain who was born. And we already know all the issues of Cain. He was um, controlled by the devil. He was of the wicked one, First John says. But you know who built the first city? Not Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve did not build the first city. Cain built the first city. And do you know what Cain named his city? He named it Enoch after his firstborn son. So Cain builds a city, and that's the first time you see the word city in the Bible, is when Cain builds it. Now, we know Cain is not driven by the Lord. He's driven by the devil. We know that from 1 John. Well, then, the next time you see somebody building a city, they're building a city in Genesis chapter 11, and what's the name of the city that the world is building that they say, come, let us build a city and a tower to reach heaven so we can overthrow that dictator God we have. Who built it? Where did, where did they build it? Babel. So this whole idea of city, 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 and now we have the lofty city. We've been seeing this in Isaiah a lot. God has to take down the lofty city. It's almost like the name city, the word city, is people organized in rebellion against God. But isn't it interesting that God takes that which people have made to reject him, and then he makes his own city as a place of perfect peace and rest? I don't know. There's, some, there's more to it than that. Abraham, God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to move you from Ur to a land of which you have not, of which you do not know. Just trust me. And Abraham did. But Abraham never built a city. 
He lived in different cities, but he never built a city. Why? Because Hebrews 11 says he waited for a city whose, hand, whose, whose foundations were built not by human hands, but by God. So Abraham was looking for a heavenly city, a city that was godly in contrast to man's city. Well, anyways, think about it on your own. I don't have much more time than that. But look at verse 5 again. What does God do to cause us to trust him? He will bring down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. The foot shall tread it down. Wait a minute. Whose feet? The feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. Who's going to be victorious in the final day besides Jesus? The poor and the humble. Not the proud and the rich, not the ones who have everything on earth and they have the intellect and the power and the money. They're the movers and shakers of our planet today. They are not the ones that are going to be victorious in the end. You take all the kings and presidents of this world, all the prime ministers, they're going to be laid low. And who will be raised up? Those who are humble in spirit. No wonder why Jesus came on the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew chapter 5 and he's speaking to all the Jewish people and he says, you want to enter the kingdom? Blessed are you if you are meek, for the meek shall inherit the earth. It's totally different than the way the world looks. The world says if you're strong and powerful and if you're a go-getter, if you trample down on everybody and you go to make a buck, then you will own the world. You'll be the Bill Gates of the world. No, Jesus says it's the other way around. You who are poor and needy, you will trample on the mighty someday. Which are you? All right, and then finally, verse 7. Now, okay, that's the song. So the song is 1 through 6. The song is over. We've entered the city. Now Isaiah takes a step back, and Isaiah is looking at um, a prayer. Here's his prayer, verse 7. And I think the prayer now is back in the present day of, of Isaiah. Because he knows before that glorious day of entering the city of Jerusalem with a great king, before that day, there's going to be a lot of suffering. Here's what he says. The way of the just is uprightness. Oh, most upright. See, he's praying. Father, he's saying, you are the most upright, and the way of the, of the justified, the one who is right with you, is a smooth path, is a straight path. Now, if you've been to Israel, you know what the roads are like in Israel. They are twisty and curvy and turny. They are going up a hill, down a hill. You can't hardly see around the next bend. I know Melissa and I were going up the Jericho Road. I, was, I think we were on our honeymoon, and uh, I had a little fiesta I had rented from the airport, and we drove that all over the country. And we were going up from Jericho into uh, Jerusalem, and it is a very narrow road, two-lane road, and on both sides are steep canyons, steep canyons where if your car goes off, they don't even go get you. It's that steep. They just leave you there and just say, hey, there, there they were. And so we're driving, and we were right behind this gigantic big trailer, uh, and on the trailer was a tank. So the tank was way over the trailer bed, and it took up most of the road. And there, now there's a whole line of cars, and you know my personality. I don't like confrontation. I don't like people honking their horn at me, and that's life in Israel. And people are honking their horn like they want me to pass. I'm in a little Ford Fiesta. I'm like, what do you mean? You know, and so they're honk, 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 honk. And then I kind of try to sneak over to see if I can pass and a big car comes down or something. And then finally the tank, the guy that's driving that big trailer with it, he's like waving like this. So I figure he can see way ahead of him, so it must be safe to go. So I pull out and we're, we're right alongside the tank and uh, we're coming up the road and we're going up an incline. And remember, it's just a very narrow road. And all of a sudden there's a tour bus coming right down at us. And I'm like, Melissa, pull in your mirrors. 
Because all I could picture was the mirrors are going off. So she opens up the window, pulls in the mirrors. I can't get past the truck fast enough because we're going up an incline. That, tr- that bus came on one side. The, the tank was on the other. And it was like a shadow of darkness. I just closed my eyes. I was just like, <laughs> like this. Seriously. And, and uh, Melissa's screaming. And I'm like, stop. You know, and we, we survived. But th- that is the typical road. You cannot see around the next bend. They, they are like horseshoe bend, and we straightened our horseshoe bend out. Thank you, Vic. Um, but, um, but yeah, so that's what the roads are like. So for the Jewish people to say in the kingdom, or even thinking about the way of the, up, the, way of the upright is straightness. It is smooth. You come back here and you take I-35 to the cities, you can almost close your eyes and drive the whole thing. It's so straight. That's the way it is for the upright. It is smooth. There's no hidden turns. There's no sudden jumbles. It is smooth and straight because you are walking with the Lord. That's the idea. The way of the just is straight. It's smooth, which you don't find a road like that in Israel. Almost upright. You weigh the path of the just. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. See, there's the trust. During these days, what do we do between now and the millennial kingdom? We wait upon the Lord. We trust him. Is he going to work with Iran and deal with the nuclear situation? Yes. Is he going to, is he going to take care of things? Is he, going to keep ISIS under, is he going to keep ISIS under control? What is the Lord going to do? Well, we, don't, we have no idea what's going to happen. We have absolutely no idea, but we trust the Lord. We wait upon him. And that is a great, Isaiah is a great example. Isaiah says, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. All we're doing, our desire is Jesus Christ. We want to see him and be with him someday. With my soul, verse 9, I have desired you in the night. I think those are the difficult times when, when life is dark and dreary. We just say, I desire you, Lord. I desired you when things were difficult. Yes, my spirit within me, I will see, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. See the devotion? These are believers going through tribulation. And this is their response. Lord, the glory days haven't arrived yet. The millennial kingdom's not here. The Lord's not on the throne. We're not entering glorified gates. We're not singing these songs yet, but we're waiting. We're patient. We're waiting for you. He says this at the end of verse 9. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. When Jesus is here teaching from the throne in Jerusalem, the whole world will learn righteousness. That's Isaiah 2. All the nations will flow to Jesus for the teaching of the word. Verse 10. Not everybody's going to be righteous, though. Let grace be shown to the wicked. What's their response? Yet he will not learn righteousness. Doesn't God show grace to the just and the unjust? The sun shines on the same. He gives rain to everybody. He feeds the the wicked, just like he feeds the saved. But the unbelievers, they just don't learn, do they? They just don't learn from God giving grace to them with daily provision, food, and a job, and a family. They don't appreciate those things. They have nobody to be appreciative to because they don't know Jesus. So the wicked can be shown grace, but they're not going to learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, they will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. They'll be blinded. They will not see God's glory. Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for their envy of people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. You know when they finally will recognize that Jesus is the, is the Lord? In those, when they're being put down. When the fires of heaven come down upon them in the tribulation, they will say, we were wrong. We recognize Jesus is God. So that day is coming, but we have to wait and be patient. Now, verse 12. Lord, you will establish peace for us. Uh, is uh, Obama and uh, the Iranian government, are they going to be able to bring peace to the Middle East with this nuclear arms 
settlement and all of that with certain restrictions on Iran as they develop nuclear weapons because they're going to be good about them. They're not going to use them for evil purposes. They're going to just use them for, for good things, you know? Um, listen, are those things going to bring peace? I think there were days when Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat, when they were all getting together, remember those days? If you're old enough, remember those days when we thought, oh, the Egyptian king, and, and you know, they're all going to get together, and the prime minister of Israel, and they're going to shake hands, and finally there'll be peace in the Middle East. Then there were days when I think it was Bill Clinton with um, uh, Arafat and the prime minister of that day, whoever it was, um, they're all shaking hands on the White House lawn, and everybody's taking pictures saying, finally, peace will come to the Middle East. This is the only way peace will come. Lord, you will establish peace for us. He will do it. For you have uh, also done all our works for us. He is the one that gets all the glory and credit. O Lord, our God, masters beside you have had dominion over us. But by you only we make mention of your name. See, this is their song in the future. This is their prayer. They're saying, Lord, we've had many masters. Hey, who named some masters of, of Israel over the years? Who controlled Israel? How about the Pharaoh? Right? Who, who won, Pharaoh or Israel? Israel won, because they're still here and Pharaoh's gone. All right, um, the Philistines at sometimes conquered, uh, conquered Israel, but who is now, who's now still standing? Israel's still standing. Um, Haman, remember the days of Haman who wanted to kill all the Jewish people and we had the Feast of Purim about that? And he wanted all, you know, the king to kill all, have all the Jewish people killed? And then Queen Esther in- intervenes. Although, who won? Israel. They have had many masters. Hitler, what does Hitler want to do back in the 1930s? He wants to destroy all of the Jewish people and develop this Aryan race to rule the world. Who won? Who's left standing? Israel. Always Israel, Israel, Israel. They've had many masters who have a dominion. Here's what, here's what the, the prayer is, or the thought is, verse 14. They are dead. The Hitlers, the Pharaohs, they are all dead. They will not live to be a problem again. They are deceased. They will not rise to torment us. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them. You know what Jeremiah 31, verse 36 says? Jeremiah 31, verse 36, one of my great... Oh, love this chapter about the future of Israel. God says, if the sun and the moon and the seasons stop, then my promises to Israel have stopped too. But as long as the sun is shining, the moon and the stars and the seasons, so then Israel will live forever. That type of thing. It's, such, it's the promise nobody will, it will eradicate the Jewish people. No one. No one ever will. They cannot. They will not. So every evil dictator, uh, verse 14, they will be punished and destroyed. They will never be a problem. And their memory will perish. Verse 15, on the contrast, look at verse 15. You have increased the nation, O Lord. And I think this is back to those glory days of the future. The future rejoicing of Israel. We'll, we're still talking about that. You have increased the nation. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You've expanded all the borders of the land. Israel will again, will, I'm sorry, for the first time, own all of the land given to them by Abraham. God promised Abraham land from the Nile River to the Euphrates. Even under David and Solomon, they never owned it all. This says, in the future day, Israel will be increased and their borders will be enlarged. Finally fulfilling God's promise to Abraham. Verse 16. Lord, in trouble, they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when you're chasing units upon them. Israel has been doing that constantly, haven't they? When, when they're in trouble, they cry out to God. They visit God. They call out to him. They pour out their prayer. And then God answers, and he protects them. Verse 17. I find this interesting. 
as a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. Now, you guys, listen. When, when a woman is in uh, labor pains, she is going to give birth to a baby, a baby boy, right? Or a baby girl, a baby. And so there's going to be something from the delivery. But here, what's the case for Israel? Verse 18, we have been with child, we have been in pain, we have, as it were, brought forth what? Wind. See, they didn't bring forth baby, they brought forth wind. Israel says, we've been suffering for all these years and we've never accomplished what you intended, God. Now, let's be, because we don't need to rush through this, but listen, Israel was given a mandate. They were given a responsibility to preach and to proclaim the truth to all the nations. God gave them his word. They were his people. They were to take that word and be a witness to all the world. And Israel says by confession right here, we have suffered and suffered and suffered like a woman in labor, but we did not bring forth a child. We brought forth nothing but wind, empty air. See, what should they have, brought, what should they have done? What should Israel have produced by their witness? They should have produced a salvation message to the whole world. They should have brought deliverance to the whole world through their message, but they didn't. They brought forth wind. Look at it again, how it says it. Verse 18, in the middle of the text, we have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the world, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. So n- neither sin has been abolished, neither has deliverance been given to the world. Israel failed completely at what God gave them. That's why in Isaiah 49, we find there's a true Israel named Jesus who will do it. What Israel couldn't do, he will. So let me ask you, what's the church's responsibility? Our responsibility is to do what? Bring the message of deliverance to all the world. We are to go to all the world and all the nations and preach and proclaim the gospel. And how is the church doing with that? Uh, you look at the modern church, you would say most of the modern church are not even made up of believers. Most are not even following God's word. Most are not even learning God's word. Most are not even, they don't, if they're not learning it, they can't obey it. So I think God could look at this and we could say, Lord, we have labored and labored for 2,000 years. We want to bring forth something. We want some fruit from our labor and we have brought nothing but forth but wind. But what we really want is we want the gospel to go to all the world. We want every tribe and every tongue to hear the name of Jesus, don't we? We want the Chinese people. We want the Africans, the South Americans, the North Americans. We want the Canadians. We want the Europeans. We want the Middle Eastern people. We want everybody to hear the name of Jesus. And we hardly can get to first base because we are maybe so bogged down with other things. Well, something for you to think about. So here's where we end, I think. Listen, because this is my my favorite part of the text. We're actually going to go all the way through chapter 27, verse 1, and we'll stop there. We're still talking about the future rejoicing of Israel. Future rejoicing. Look up here. I think Isaiah's got a problem because he knows what's going to happen between now and the future. He knows the Jewish people are going to suffer those labor pains, which means death to many Jewish people. I don't think Isaiah envisioned it, but he probably knew things like Haman and his desire to exterminate the Jewish people would happen. I bet Isaiah would have known, or not even guessed, but he would, get, he would kind of figure that a man like Hitler would kill six million Jewish people in the Holocaust. You go into the Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, the new modern, the new museum, the new, or I'm sorry, the, the new memorial. 
It is very moving. It's the one place probably, I don't know, if I can name another place I've been in the world like this, where nobody talks. There's no frivolity. Nobody is eating popcorn and sipping pop or beverages as they walk through this, museum, this, um, this remembrance hall. But you walk in from place to place, and you're seeing jackets of Jewish people that were riddled with bullets. You'll see all sorts of things that the Germans stole from the Jewish people, gold in their teeth, hair, a whole pile of spectacles, things like that. But then you go up to the hill after you walk through that, and the shape of the memorial center is in the shape of a, it's a, a railroad, uh, it's a railroad beam. So it's long and narrow, and you're walking back and forth, almost like you're, like, so you almost picture, and then the end of the memorial center, the end of the rail shaft, the rail beam that you're walking through, drops off into, an, there's a huge glass wall, and then you go into the glass, and you just see nothing but a big drop into a chasm. It's almost like you can almost picture the Jewish people coming on all the trains to the death camps. It's awful. And then you go up to the Children's Memorial Center, and there's one candle in the center of the room with thousands of mirrors, and it just reflects that one candle many times. And you walk in darkness, and all you hear is the names of Jewish children and their ages that that died in the Holocaust. Isaiah must be thinking here, Lord, We know the glory days are coming. We know it. We know the day is going to come when the gates will be opened and the righteous nation will enter in and our Messiah King will be on the throne. We know it's coming. We also have to wait and patiently wait year after year, decade after decade, hundred year after hundred year, thousand year after thousand year, and we will suffer. And in our suffering, we will never produce what you wanted, deliverance for the world. We can't do it. We won't do it. But we will suffer. What about all the Jewish people that have died and trusted in the Lord? They trusted, they waited upon you, but they died. What about them? How could we enjoy the kingdom when our loved ones who trusted in the the Lord have died? Doesn't it make sense what he's asking? Look at this verse 19. What about the dead ones? Your dead shall live. Those four words, probably the greatest words you'll find in the text. Your dead shall live. What I talked about this morning. Together with my dead body, Isaiah says, they shall arise. Isaiah says, don't be downcast, people. Yes, there's days of suffering and many Jewish people will die. But those who trust in the Messiah, together with my dead body, will arise out of the ground. Then he says this, awake and sing. See, they're going to rise out of the grave and what will they do? Sing praises in glorified bodies to their Messiah. You awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, you dust dwellers. So rather than being the end of life, the dust, the dust dwellers are there just temporarily. And they will rise out and they will join a great chorus of, of singers praising God. And then this, for your dew is like the dew of herbs. See, the dew is so necessary for the, for the land to bring forth vegetation in Israel especially during the dry days, the, the dew was essential. So when, when you went for months without rain, the dew is what kept things going. Uh, so here, the dew is going to cover the earth, and then out of the earth, not coming forth green shoots of plants, but people coming right out of the ground. What a scene. And then these final words, and the earth shall cast out the dead. 
They will just boom. The earth will fill all the earth. The dead, the dead ones in the dust will come right out of the grave and stand up and join Jesus in the kingdom. Pretty impressive. That's future rejoicing. So in the meantime, we go back to verse 20. In the meantime, Isaiah says this, Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. The believers, protect yourself. Get inside the door, your house, and shut the door. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is passed. That indignation is seven years of tribulation. He's, gonna, he's telling them, in the future, when you go through the seven years of great tribulation, hide in the door. Shut the door, close the windows, the Lord will protect you. Do not take the mark of the beast. Do not let the Antichrist get you. Do not let the global authorities d- take you and kill you. Hide out. So we're going to have believers in the future day hiding out, maybe in our houses because they'll be vacant. We'll be gone at the rapture. Maybe they'll use our church. Wouldn't that be great if this was some place of underground believers? And believers in the future tribulation are coming here and they're closing the door and they're hiding for a little while because the indignation is only seven years. Verse 21, For behold, the Lord comes out of his place, he comes out of heaven to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. That's Revelation 6 through 19. I talked about that last week. The earth will also disclose her blood. The earth, the earth is also going to have a role to play in destroying many unsaved people as the earth opens up and swallows up many people and earthquakes and hailstones. The earth is going to take care of a lot of people just killing them because the Lord won't do it necessarily by his hand. He'll let the earth cover it. And then there'll be, uh, and will be no more, they will no more cover her slain. The earth is going to be on the, si- on the side of Israel and the Lord. Ch- uh, chapter 27, verse 1. The final verse for tonight. In that day, the millennial kingdom. This is future rejoicing. The Lord, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. All right. Who is Leviathan here? Well, three options. It could be the ancient beast of the book of Job, a ferocious creature created by God. I doubt it. It could be, Leviathan could be a picture of the three enemy nations, one that is crooked, one that is straight, and one that's in the sea. It could be Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. It could be. My view is Leviathan is the devil himself. Because even if it's the nations, who's energizing those wicked nations? Who's energizing even the wicked Middle East nations today? Satan is. He's stirring them up. And Jesus will come, and he's going to take care of our greatest threat, Leviathan, the devil himself. He will destroy that devil. He will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. He will bind up Satan for a 1,000 years. And Satan will have no influence on this world for 1,000 years. So the greatest enemy of God, the devil, Lucifer, Satan himself will be taken care of by Jesus in the final day. So that's ultimate victory. Isn't that great? So what's the future rejoicing of Israel? It is coming. There is a day coming. And you can almost hear the little ringings in the air of believers gathering in Israel saying, come, open up the doors. We have a strong city. Enter goes the king of the glory, the king of glory, and we will follow in as well. And we are safe and secure because our mind has trusted and rested on him We will trust in the Lord forever. Yes, Yahweh, Yah, the Lord, he is our everlasting strength. In the meantime, we wait, and we wait patiently, and we suffer. But we know that all the enemies that suffer, that cause us to suffer, they are going to die and not rise again. They will die and never be a threat to us. Their name will not be remembered. We will always win. And for the dead ones, for the dead ones who during the waiting time trusted in the Lord but then ended up in death, 
their, their bodies will rise and awake and sing, and we will um, come right out of the dust. That's the promise. See, isn't this a great chapter? Like, it's such a hard one, though. It's not, it's not like the easiest chapter in the world. But it is a good one, and it gives you what's going to happen in the, in the future. A great song to be sung. Now, next Sunday night, we'll take a look at chapter 27, then, where it talks about the future regathering of God's people, when he's going to bring them one by one into the, into the kingdom, the promised land. We'll look at that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of encouragement. We know that these days of glory are yet to come. And this whole earth will be transformed by the power and grace of Jesus Christ. We cannot wait when we as the church, the bride of Jesus, as we watch our groom receive the crown, the kingly crown in Jerusalem. And as he walks across the Kidron Valley and the gates open up and our great Messiah, the King of glory, enters in and is seated on the throne and perfect peace and rest are given to everyone. Wow. What a glory day that will be. We want to wait patiently and trust you in the midst of life's battles, the trials, the diseases, the hurts, the agonies, the loneliness, the bitterness, all of those things we give to you. We trust you. Our mindset is to let you work. We don't want to change our circumstance. We want to trust you in the midst of it and let you do the work. Father, we have no idea what this week has in store for us, but we trust you. We know you'll bring us your perfect will as we follow you. We yield ourselves to you. Thank you, Father, for this church as we faithfully follow your word. Help us to remember it, to be captured by it. Help us to be able to visualize it and await for the coming of Jesus. May we be found faithful and loyal disciples of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.